You are listening to Secret History with me, Matthew Blackman. And me, Nick Dahl. So this podcast is about secret histories. And what I mean by that is that it is about histories from the margins, untold histories, mainly to do with Africa and Particularly, I guess there will be a focus on South Africa because Nick and I have written three books on South African history. So that's a that's an obvious one for us. But where the name comes from is that there was a genre of writing in the 17th and 18th century called secret history. And it was written by largely speaking novelists, three kind of famous novelists, Daniel Defoe, Eliza Haywood and Afra Ben, and some of them were kind of partly fictional, but they were about exposing corruption and salacious affairs between famous political leaders. And I guess that's, in some ways, the method that we used for writing our books. But I think, Nick, we should probably talk about who we are and what we have done in the past and why we are doing this podcast together. Yeah, so we are both writers and we've known each other for a while. Um, and we both have a, a deep interest in South African history. A few years ago, we accidentally got into the business of selling rum. And uh, after about a year of traipsing around the less pleasant suburbs of Cape Town, trying to persuade people that they needed to buy our rum, we realized that that selling rum wasn't really our main skill but but we'd quite enjoyed working together so we decided to do something we were actually good at and and the only thing that we were both good at was was writing and then we had to decide what we were going to write about and it took a bit of a back and forth but eventually one morning ironically sitting at the Rhodes Memorial Tea Cafe which has since burned down um, we realized that nobody had written a history of corruption in South Africa even though it's it's a national obsession. And uh, that's how Rogue's Gallery, our first book, was born. And we've gone on to write two other books, one on the history, or maybe even the secret history of democracy in South Africa, and another one about what we have called legends, which are essentially the good and interesting people of South Africa. But we thought we'd start this podcast off with the beginning of colonial South Africa. Um, and we're beginning there because that's where the written historical records begin. It may be slightly problematic. People might say, you know, we should be covering other, you know, further back. But we are historians who look at the archival records and that's what we've got and that's what we can only really talk about. So um, we're going to begin with the wreck of the Harlem, which kind of set off the beginning of colonial life in South Africa. And I thought what we'd do is we're going to start with um, a poem by a man by the name of Robert Grendon. Now, Robert Grendon was not an Englishman, as the name might suggest, but he was a man who was born in Namibia, or what is now Namibia, um, to a Irish trader and actually a the daughter of Maharero, who was one of the leaders of the Herero. 
a woman by the name of Maria, and he became a poet, and he wrote a very strange epic poem called Paul Kruger's Dream, despite the fact that he absolutely loathed Paul Kruger. He nevertheless deemed it of interest to write a 4,300-line poem on the man. But he began with um, these lines about the wreck of the Harlem. So it begins, and Nick and I are no doubt going to have a difference of opinion on one of the words in the poem. Uh, and uh, let's see if I can pronounce it correctly. Uh, you might find out that Nick is a bit of a, a stickler for the correct pronunciation of words, and I am very bad at that on occasion. So this is the beginning of Paul Kruger's dream. Two centuries, two centuries well nigh have passed since on yon foam-fringed coast, beneath old table mountains, wind-fanned brow, a band of Dutchmen, sailors, homeward bound, with treasures from the east, were shipwrecked cast. Five months they sojourned in that pleasant land, in ease, in ease and plenty, undisturbed, forgetful of their home beyond the sea. And when the time for their departure came, they bade farewell with loathing and regret, and gazing back upon that foam-fringed shore, that fruitful valley, and those azure peaks, with tearful eyes they yearned and hoped and prayed that they here too might wander back again, and yearning, hoping, praying, thus they sang, and it goes on to a little song. Um, now, yeah, so that's Robert Brendan's poem. It goes on for another 4,000 odd lines. Um, it's pretty engaging, but um, is it accurate? Nicholas, take it away. Well, uh, it's, as you say, it's a poem, so it's not 100% accurate. They, they spent longer than five months at the Cape. Um, but but the, it's definitely got the gist of the story. And, and maybe I should just tell that story. So basically, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, was headquartered in Holland. And all of its business was in the East, trading spices and silks and that kind of thing. And uh, to get to the East, they had to round the Cape. And it was a long and treacherous journey. And a fleet of ships returning from Batavia to Amsterdam, one of the ships floundered, uh, ran aground in Table Bay in 1647. And that ship was called the New Harlem. And uh, what's interesting about this shipwreck is that it, it, in many ways, it actually was the catalyst that led to the establishment of South Africa, as we know it. Um, so the Harlem ran aground. Nobody died. It ran aground. We're not 100% certain, but we believe pretty near the Dolphin Beach Hotel, which is somewhere sort of midway between Milnerton and Bloberg. So the ship had a very valuable cargo. It was traveling in convoy with a couple of other ships. So what they decided to do was for half of the crew to get onto the other ships and head back to Holland, and the other half of the crew, so about 60 people, to stay behind in Table Bay, guarding the cargo and, and gradually getting the cargo off the ship. 
because it, it ran aground one musket shot from the beach. So, so just getting the cargo off the ship took weeks and was very dangerous and very tiring and time consuming. Yeah, but, so, so that's the sort of start of the story. What is interesting is how much effort and the fact that human beings were of really little importance to them. They just dumped the 60 guys there saying, off you go. You, you have to offload this ship for the next year. They didn't seem particularly worried about their, their fellow crew members. They just waved goodbye to them and said, you know, well, we'll see you around maybe sometime. And I mean, they, they took a, a long time to return to these guys who they just left. And the reason why they left them was so that they offloaded the ship. It seems quite incredible. Yeah, just to, to get anything of value from the ship so that it could be picked up next time. Um, and and then it wasn't, I wouldn't say the dem decision was democratic, but it was it was thought through. So they left, you know, some senior people who could be in control. They left a carpenter, they left a chef, you know, so there was a good sort of the party they left behind could hopefully organize themselves. Well, I'm glad they, they left the chef behind. Um, um, and... What for me is actually one of the kind of great tragedies of the whole event is that the, one of the other ships was called Vit Olifant, which if only if it yes. was that ship that had wrecked in Table Bay, that would have allowed us a lot more sort of punning and humorous opportunities. But sadly, it was the globe-trotting Nuva Harlem that, that ended up being... Yeah, rich. it was actually the, the, new, the new Harlem... The reason they ran aground was the Vit Olifant. They thought the Vit Olifant was in trouble, so they went to investigate, and then they managed to wreck themselves. But yes, that's what happened. So, I mean, the story of they spent almost a year here. It was definitely more than five months, as Grandin said. It's quite remarkable. They, you know, for centuries, yeah, at, at least two centuries, European sailors had been rounding the Cape. And they had, there were several places they stopped off to take on supplies because, you know, you can't just do that long journey in one go. You need fresh water and you need fresh fruit and veg, you know, the whole scurvy thing. So that Table Bay was one of the places they stopped off, but nobody had had the courage to establish a permanent station there for several reasons that, you know, they thought there wasn't enough produce and they were also worried about the locals. They thought that they were sort of murderous, cannibalistic lot. So these 60 or so people who spent a year, almost a year living in, in a fort on the beach, which they, even they had a sense of humor. They, they called their, their settlement Sandenburg, which meant literally sandcastle. So they, they did all sorts of things. They, they took a rowing boat to Robben Island and plundered penguin eggs. They uh, found the freshwater source in uh, sort of the Golden Acre where the Golden Acre Mall is, uh, that would later be the fresh water source for the first um, fort that Jan van Riebeck built. They shot and killed a rhinoceros. They caught loads of fish in the Salt River Lagoon. So, so they had quite an um, interesting year. If you read their journal, um, a lot of it is mentioning which direction the wind is coming from. So, so they were clearly in Cape Town, but there are also some more interesting details. <laughs> Well, exactly. I mean, you know, wind plays a massive role in their life in that they, you know, they were, they were beached, the, the Harlem was beached because of this terrible wind and the wind just carried on blowing for 
you know, seemingly the, their entire time there, but they nevertheless strangely went back to Holland and stated that Table Bay had the natural conditions at the Cape seemed to be favorable, they said. I mean, having spent an awful year of the wind blowing almost constantly, they they somehow believed that Table Bay was a good place, um, you know, to set up a you know, a station for um, a replenishing the ships, which I don't know, to me seems really odd and that they, they not only does their ship get completely wrecked because of the wind, they have a huge amount of trouble with the other ships because of the wind, but nevertheless, they, they see this bay as a place of sanctuary, which is a bit odd. Um, well, Matthew, I mean, you and I have lived in Cape Town all our lives and we've also had to put up with the wind. And I guess it's just that that odd windless day that makes you want to come back because it is a pretty special place and there were still fish in the lagoons and you could have a nice penguin omelette for breakfast. Well, I mean, you know, I always enjoy a penguin omelette. What is interesting is colonial interaction had, had already been there because there was a man amongst the group that they met who spoke English um, and they, they note him on several occasions um, and he would play a major role later on um, in, in von Riebeck's um, time in the Cape. But um, who were these people and what kind of encounters did the Dutch have with them and how did they feel about these guys? Yeah, so I'll just read a little bit. On the, on the 1st of June, um, 1647, the wind northerly, cold weather with heavy breakers could not retrieve any pepper. That's pepper from the ship. And so it's still... Three months after the ship being wrecked, they're still desperately trying to get pepper off it. Um, and I'm quoting again. Um, Afternoon, 13 Strandlopers appeared at our fortification, inhabitants of these parts. Went to them with some of our men and found that one of the 13 spoke English very well. They offered us five sheep, in lieu of which we gave them some pieces of yellow copper. The same Strandlopers tried very hard to talk us into allowing them to visit our fortification on our ship, but we could not allow this, as we were fully aware how hostile they had been towards Mr. Fantasum and the crew from the ship Mauritius. For this reason, we told them not to approach our fortification any closer, which was at a distance of approximately one musket shot, which they did not like, and they left discontented. So we're just going to take a quick break now. And when we return, we are going to talk about one of the most famous names in South African history, the man with a feather in his hat, the man known as, well, you'll find out now. So, finally, after almost a year of being in the Cape, the crew of the Nuva Harlem having offloaded most of the cargo from the wreck of the Nuva Harlem, they are picked up. And who, importantly, was on one of these ships? Yeah, so a chap by the name of Jan van Riebeck was on one of the ships. He was coming back from Batavia, or actually from Tonkin, which is currently known as Vietnam, in disgrace. He'd, he'd been in the running for the top job in Tonkin. He was quite an able administrator. but He'd been caught sort of insider trading, uh, doing a side hustle, an illegal side hustle, let's put it that way. And um, 
basically he was guilty of corruption. So what he did, he, he resigned before he could be fired, just to sort of save a little bit of face. And he, he got on board a ship heading back to Holland, and that ship just so happened to pick up 50-odd men who'd spent almost a year living in Table Bay. Yeah, and so these guys, including Lindert Janse, who was the the man who was really in charge of them in um, in Table Bay, they head back to Amsterdam and they write a remonstranti. And Nick has the more correct pronunciation of that word. Yeah. So before they write the remonstranti, you know, they had a couple of months from Cape Town to Amsterdam. And Van Riebeck was a pretty important guy, even though he was in disgrace. And, and Jans was the most important guy from the, Har- the wreck of the Harlem. And they obviously talked about what the guys had seen in Table Bay, what Table Bay was like. And I think on this journey, Van Riebeck got a nice sort of an idea. Maybe this is my shot at redemption. If we can convince the, um, the big bosses at the VOC, the Lord 17, or as one of the letters addressed to them calls them, noble, brave, wise, provident, and very discreet gentlemen, my lords. Um, just if doing, he... doing some serious um, calling. Um, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I haven't ever got an email like that, um, but maybe one oh, day. Indeed. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, when, when they got to Amsterdam, they ended Jans and another guy called Pruitt, who we're not quite sure who Pruitt is, because he wasn't on the Harlem, but he, he seemed to help Leonard Jans to write this remonstrancy, wrote a document explaining to the directors of the company, the noble and provident gentleman, why he thought they should establish a permanent settlement at the Cape. And in the meantime, there was this doc, you know, this sort of formal thing going along. And Van Riebeck was also sort of doing sort of subtle backdoor Pushing kind of pressuring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To get the same sort of result. So maybe I should should read a little bit from the remonstrancy. So the title of the document, which is, doesn't win any prizes for brevity, is Remonstration with which it is succinctly demonstrated and indicated what service, advantage, and profit will accrue to the United Chartered East India Company by constructing a fort and garden at the Cape of Good Hope. And um, it, it's it's fairly lengthy document and goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, the head, the bosses of the Dutch East India Company were notoriously stingy. So there's a lot of detail about exactly how much it will cost to do the various things that they suggest. So they, they say, we say, therefore, honorable gentlemen, that were the honorable company to establish a fort or redoubt, as well as a garden of such size as may be necessary at the aforementioned Cape of Good Hope, situated in a suitable location in the Table Valley and stationing there, according to your honorable's discretion, 60 to 70 soldiers and seafarers, as well as some people who are experienced with gardening, many and diverse fruits can be obtained, both fourth ships that sail to India, as well as the returning ships and their crews, as will be deduced in more detail in the following. So then they go into great detail about mm-hmm. what kind of plants you could grow. Yes. Lemon, citron, gooseberry, etc. watermelon, Pumpkins, turnips. Yeah, watermelons, I mean, cabbages, case. carrots, radishes, turnips, onions, garlic, and every other kind of vegetable. Furthermore, oranges, limes, lemons, grapefruits, apples, pears, plums, cherries, and black currants, and the fruits of which 
would stay fresh for a long time aboard ship. Um, yeah, I mean, like they, they, they're really laying it on pretty thick. Yeah, I mean, it sounds better than Willie's, but um, yeah. Anyway, so, so they also have a very important point about the people who are living there because this, this yes. is kind of essential. Um, this is the big that, thing, yes. Yeah. And I, and I think I should just read this again. One of the big reasons, as I mentioned earlier, is that, that no European government had established a permanent presence at the Cape was that they, they feared the locals. And um, because there'd, one, there'd actually been a fight, there'd been a battle of Salt River where the Portuguese had um, gone up Salt River and met with the people who who actually were known then as Saldana Mensa and or you know there were a lot of different names for for the people who were living in the Cape but the 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 Portuguese were actually um, defeated I mean it was probably more a kind of skirmish than a battle so so there was a fear of what would happen to a group of Europeans who tried to settle in the Cape because they'd already met the the local population and they seem to be unfriendly. Yes, and I mean, even a few members of the, the crew that were wrecked with the Harlem um, were killed by the locals. Uh, and there were a couple of occasions where someone but was there killed. Were, but there were, some, there were some very good reasons as to why they were killed, and that's, that yes. kind of happens in what they actually mention in this document, this lengthy... Yes, so... It's, so, so Jans, and I think this is what sets him apart, Leander Jans, is he was able to see that that most of these deaths were, were actually the Europeans' fault. So here's what he says. Um, Others will say that the inhabitants are savages and man-eating people, and that no good is to be expected from them, but that we must always be on our guard. This, however, is nonsense, as will be indicated in more detail. And to the contrary, although, <laughs> and here there is, of course, an although, Although we do not deny that without laws and law enforcement, they are like many Indians. Also, it is true that some sailors and soldiers were beaten to death by them. But the reason for this has always been quite clear to those of ours who gave them reason. We believe strongly that the farmers in this country, when, so he's talking about farmers in Holland now, when one would shoot their cattle and take these away without payment, as no justice was to be feared, would not be one hair better than these indigenous people. So here he's saying, if you just shot at people and stole their cattle, of course they're going to defend themselves, and you might well end up being killed. So I think he's got quite an enlightened viewpoint. Um, yes, and I mean, his, his point is that the, all the, the deaths that had happened in the crew of the Harlem and various other ships that had landed there was generally because the, the Dutch sailors were trying to steal cattle and, you know, the local inhabitants were just protecting what was theirs. Yeah, and he, and he mentions how when a ship when, the, when a ship called the Princess Royal arrived in Table Bay, carrying around 90 sick people, thanks to provisions provided by the locals, cows and sheep, etc., they were able to get Mercy's people back to help. So Jansa is, is adamant that the indigenous people of this area will be friendly if you treat them with decency and justice and you don't steal their cattle. It will be fine. Yeah, so maybe I should, I should quote again here. So he talks about how the carpenter and the corporal from the Harlem went to the, where the indigenous people lived and they were received and treated in a friendly manner by the aforementioned inhabitants who could have beaten them to death as they were in their hands should they have been inclined to cannibalism 
as has been suggested by some. It is therefore, and this is the crux, beyond doubt that the killing of our people is caused more by revenge due to the stealing of their cattle than because they want to eat them. Well said, well uh, said. Um... Yeah, so he puts it pretty bluntly. The previously mentioned fort should have a good commander who treats the indigenous people politely and who pays for everything that is bartered from them and to treat some of them with a belly full of food, peas, beans, of which they are very fond. They should not be feared at all, but they will learn the Dutch language in time. The inhabitants of the Soldana Bay and those inland could be persuaded to trade, but this cannot be guaranteed. Yeah, um, as anyone who's read any of our books will know, we're, we're not huge fans of Jacob Zuma, but he, he did get at least one thing right when he said the problem in South Africa began when Jan van Riebeck came here. And that, that really was true. Leonard Jans in the Remonstrancy had asked for a good, fair commander who gives the locals a belly full of food. Instead, they got Jan van Riebeck. I interviewed uh, an expert on this period, Professor Gerald Krunewald, about Jan van Riebeck a while ago. And here's what he had to say. From day one, Van Riebeck had a negative view of the cuckoo. He had a low opinion of them and distrusted them very much. His ill relationship with the cuckoo led to the first cuckoo Dutch war of 1658. So, so within six years of Jan van Riebeck's arrival, there was a full-blown war. So, yeah, I mean, Jan van Riebeck, not a particularly nice man, it seems. Um, so, I mean... Maybe we should quote from Van Riebeck's diaries at some point to, to, to hammer home this point. Because mm -hmm. um, Van Riebeck spent 10 years at the Cape and he because of the, the kind of company rules, he recorded every single day he wrote down what he got up. Um, and he spent most of his 10 years dreaming of an escape from this hellhole and hoping to get a promotion to somewhere more pleasant than the Cape. But so he, he was... Ex yeah. No, but hold on. I thought there were the natural conditions at the Cape seemed to be favorable. Like, I, isn't he having a splendid time? What's what's going on? Why is he having such a? I mean, you know, the Cape, the the fairest Cape of them all. What's going on? Well, I think I, I think the problem was that he was the one who was charged with getting it all going, and it it was pretty hard. You know, if if you imagine, you know, you're working for a big multinational like KPMG, and they say, okay, you're going to go and open the Timbuktu branch. Um, and, you know, there's nothing there. But, so this was kind of what Van Riebeck was faced with. And he wasn't a very nice man. He was dealing with the sort of corruption, trying to clear his name of these corruption charges. And, and he just, his whole vibe, his whole attitude while here was negative. He okay. wasn't happy to be here. He didn't like being here. And he, he made this very clear. So anyway, so he, um, he talked about the local, he called them Hotten Twos, was his term. Hotten twos without cattle arrive at the fort, boldly stealing whatever they can lay their hands upon, not hesitating to deprive our people, even under the fort, when unarmed, of their property. And this is now, this is really scandalous. And coaxing the children aside to rob them of their brass buttons, though they are so well treated. So um, it, there's little doubt, I mean, you, if you read the diaries, there was a lot of cattle stealing both ways. But um, it's it's probably local... Im important to, to note that the, the only cattle that were here 
were not the Dutch cat. The Dutch got the cattle in some manner for it to be taken away from them. I mean, you know, there may have been Perfectly. some bartering yeah. or whatever, but but you know, like they didn't arrive with cattle. So when they're saying the cattle is no. stolen from us, you know, that's it's a bit disingenuous. Yeah, I mean, although later there were no horses here, and the Dutch did bring horses, and later there was horse stealing. So yes, but but in the beginning, the cattle were all from here, and so they were all technically stolen by the Dutch. And and the other question, of course, aside from cattle, is land, and that's that's another whole thing which I'm sure we'll do a podcast on sometime because it's also very interesting. No, exactly. So Jan van Riebeck's having a a, a pretty bad time of it. He's getting all depra about being out here. But there is a man here who, as we've stated earlier, could uh, speak English, and his name was Atumau, or actually the Dutch referred to him as Harry or Harry, and he um, had learnt English seemingly on a British naval ship, so we don't know too much about him, but he is a potential ally for the Dutch, right? Yeah, so I mean, when when Van Riebeck arrived here, I mean, Harry was the biggest asset he had in terms of the local population. You know, he was someone you could actually communicate with. So so it made sense to befriend him and and to to get what, to sort of advance your cause by by teaming up with him. And and for a while that did happen, um, that they worked together. But um, Van Riebeck's treatment of Harry, you know, he, basically Van Riebeck just wasn't very good at being nice. And eventually it seems Harry had enough. And um, one Sunday during divine service, during the church service, um, Harry and, and his um, comrades stole all of the Dutch cattle, 44 in number. And then here's what Van Riebeck had to say about the whole experience. He said, the thieves have always been protected by us since our arrival, and we have shown them much kindness, especially the interpreter, Harry, who daily dined at our table and was clothed with Dutch clothes and adorned with a copper chain, a stick, and plates. The others, likewise, were always well-fed and consequently always prepared to fetch water and fuel. They were, they were always just so keen to fetch water and fuel, to milk the cows and take charge of the calves. We were as kind to them as if they were our own people, and we, we believed that they were as favorably disposed towards us. We find that we have been deceived. I mean, this it just it's just so very similar to the kind of things you hear during apartheid, uh, the kind of justifications that you'd get coming out of um, Milan or, or Favut or Forster's mouth, sort of saying, you know, we've just shown them such kindness and all they can do is, you know, they, they protest, you know, when, when, when we want to learn only in Afrikaans, they, they object and it's like, you know, we, we've built them schools and all this stuff. And it's, it's just, it's that same trope that continues yeah. throughout our history. And I mean, just, you know, how, how willing they are just to fall into the service of the Dutch and, um, you know, it it is it it is very familiar and and you you still hear it today amongst uh, amongst our own folk in this dear land of ours um and um so Harry actually ends up as the first prisoner of Robben Island and I believe that he managed to get himself off Robben Island by swimming which was pretty unusual i don't think anybody 
swam the the Robin Island um swim successfully uh, any prisoner of Robin yeah Island. The, yeah I mean the story is that Makanda nearly did but he sort of died while trying to walk ashore in Bloberg but yeah yeah so no it's, it's not an easy swim I mean at the best of times with with a sort of dinghy accompanying you and feeding you energy bars but um to do it in a, in a prisoner's uniform or, or you know this is probably much harder and so van Riebeck's stay here not the happiest time for him and certainly not the happiest time for the indigenous people of south africa yeah so so van Riebeck um spent 10 years at the cape and totally left in 1662 and by which time he'd established a fort and kind of got things going he established the fort that had been imagined by Jans in the Remonstrancy. And while it's tempting to think that corruption in South Africa was sort of started by Jan van Riebeck, this guy who was sent here as a punishment for corruption. And, and I think if given the opportunity, van Riebeck definitely would have been a corrupt commander of the, of the Cape um, station. But the simple truth is there wasn't enough of an economy here to, to be flagrantly corrupt. Uh, you, you could maybe get a little bit of extra um, pomegranate or something, but there, there wasn't much more to it than that. So, so the real corruption in South Africa began with this, the subsequent commanders. So Simon van der Stel started to sort of some pretty good corruption and then his son Willem Adrian van der Stel really perfected the art and and began the sort of looting of the state which continues to this day but as you say Jan van Riebeck's day here you know there was a there was a lot of um theft there was the taking of land there were wars there it wasn't a happy beginning and yeah i mean whatever view you take on south africa um that uh jan van riebeck's arrival as jacob zuma so wonderfully put it <laughs> was the beginning of all of our problems or certainly the beginning of all our recorded problems um so in the next podcast, we are going to to follow that history of corruption. Um, but for now, I think um, that's where we're going to end. Hello, this is Matthew Blackman from Secret History. I am just letting you know that if you like our podcast, you can go to www.secret-history.net to check out more about what we do, who we are. You'll even be able to visit this mysterious thing called our Patreon account. So yeah, check it out. That is www.secret-history.net and you can find lots of things there like reading lists and information about us as writers, where we're going to be, and all those exciting things. So check it out. <laughs>